Welcome to Troublesome Chirps, the podcast about topics that keep interpreters up at night. Oh, Alex? Uh, yeah, yeah, sorry. On the other hand, that was a very good introduction. I agree, although maybe you could try it a little bit quicker. Yeah, and maybe emphasize the title just, just a wee bit more. Guys, really? Okay. This is indeed Troublesome Terms, the podcast about the things that keep interpreters up at night. And as you might have guessed, we are talking about feedback. I'm Alexander Gansmeyer, and with me here in our virtual studio is our usual dynamic duo. First up, his advice is always sound, Alexander Drexel. Oh, thank you so much. That's very kind. Uh, maybe the feedback puns are a bit on the nose, but I like them. Jonathan wrote them. <laughs> Let's blame Jonathan, because as always, he's in the loop. Jonathan Downey. Thank you. Uh, my, my middle name is Dr. Pun. It got a really strange look from the uh, registrar when I tried to change it. But there we go. <laughs> <laughs> they let you do everything now with your passport after Brexit. Uh, anyway. Oh, don't, don't mention that word. <laughs> don't mention the B word. Thanks for the introductions, Alex. Uh, but we have one more person to introduce, uh, which is our guest for tonight's show, Aline Casanova. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. It's great to have you. Um, and we, we figured you'd be a, a very good guest to have on the show for um, the topic of feedback, which we've been wanting to cover for a while. And um, you're in the middle of a very big project, which is called Interpret Time Bank. So we'll talk a little bit about that. But why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself first, Aline? Well, I graduated from the Master's in Conference Interpreting at the University of La Laguna, but before that, I was a dance major. So the whole issue of deliberate practice and uh, feedback was very, very important in my life. Excellent. Really. And I'm currently based in Madrid, but I worked for a couple of years in Geneva. I am a, an accredited um, freelance interpreter at the United Nations in Geneva. Excellent. Um, so, so how did you make the switch from dancing to interpreting, if I may ask? It really all came down to money, Alex. It is very hard to make ends meet as a dancer. And as I was getting older, I was looking for basically a new, a new career, a new professional pathway. So it took many, many years because, first of all, I had to learn a third language. And um, I had to get a lot of information and, you know, look at what my options were at the moment. And finally, I was able to go to La Laguna. But I, from, you know, from one profession to another, it took me about 10 years to be able to wow. make a switch. The next question uh, that I have, Aline, for you is, um, can you tell us a little bit about the um, other people that are on the Interpret Time Bank project? Yes, the Interpret Time Bank team is a group of five wonderful young women. We all graduated uh, from La Laguna at the same time. So that's where we met. And really, that's where the idea started brewing. Their names are Lia Giralt, Nuria Campoy, Ana Galet, and Monica Diaz Casariego. We are all based in different, um, in different cities, in different countries all over Europe. And um, we have been working on this project for four years now, or a little bit more than four years. And this cooperation was uh, a result of you studying together? Is that how yeah. how that happened? Okay. Yeah, basically, because, you know, La Laguna is in the Canary Islands. 
And so we all finished our masters and we all left. Yeah. We all went to different parts <laughs> of the world trying to find a job or trying to see what our next professional move was going to be. So we realized very quickly that if we wanted to make it into the market at some point, we needed to keep up our skills. And it was really hard to get those mm. skills. The master's was hard. So since we were spread out in different parts of the world, and by that I mean Germany, Russia, Morocco, the wow. UK, or Mexico. I went to Mexico mm. right after the master's. Really, the only way to do it was to meet online. That's right. Um, before we move deeper in the, into the project, I'm a little bit curious um, about you, Alex and Jonathan, and about the the kind of feedback that you got at university and whether whether you or your teachers, I think, or trainers ever addressed how to give feedback or was it more like learning as you went along? Do you have any, do you recall that at all, how that went? Um, so th there's two things going on in my head. One is when it came to feedback in university, I think it was generally good, but we're generally on the level of here's things to do to improve. Um, I remember that we tended not to hear things like that was a really, really good speech. Um, certainly, I've learned over time to use what they call the sandwich technique, which is you put little negative things in between two, two positive things. Um, at university, I think because my impression of interpreter training in a lot of places is they deliberately make it a pressure cooker. And certainly, in some ways, that was true in, my ma in the Masters I did. And so I don't think any of us expected to get pats on the back, but we never really got any pats on the back if we did expect them. Um, and there was certainly, there was never any specific sessions about giving and taking feedback. And I don't know about anyone else, but whenever I ask my boothmate for feedback, they look at me like I'm sort of strange. <laughs> like, yeah. why would you want feedback? You obviously did. You occasionally get the other interpreter going, good job, or... But, you know, that that's that's about as far as it goes. Um, and when you get... It's usually because the speaker's been an idiot, not the interpreter. Yeah. <laughs> that's very true, yeah. I actually agree. It's kind of um, rare nowadays to get feedback from other interpreters. But at university, we didn't have any particular classes to teach us how to give or take feedback, but we would give feedback to each other. So there would mm. always be certain classes where we would, you know, interpret mostly consecutively because then everybody could hear it. And then we would kind of critique is maybe the wrong word, but nudge us in the right direction as to, you know, how to posture yourself, how to speak, how to gesture or not gesture. So those kinds of things we did on a regular basis. And I think that kind of helped in um, giving critique, but eventually we all kind of got numb and we were just saying, you're doing this wrong, you're doing that wrong. because it's kind of like a, a weekly exercise that we did. And then you just get used to it. I think, I mean, this is one of the things I wanted to ask you about interpreting by Killeen. Interpreters aren't necessarily used to giving positive feedback we're quite good at telling each other, you need to change your lag, you need to do this, blah, blah, blah. Have you managed to to do anything to help interpreters learn to be nice to each other? Well, teaching someone to be nice to someone else <laughs> is what I'm trying to do with my son. But um, we do have a set of guidelines um, that are available and you can download and more or less figure out how to give feedback and From the very beginning, when we created the community, there was a document that explained the rules. And in those rules, we kindly asked people to, to be nice to each other, to be punctual, <laughs> to respect their commitments. I mean, 
it should go without saying, right? But sometimes when when you're working online and you have someone at the other end of the world that might run into traffic and might miss the appointment, right. it, it is just a nice reminder to tell them, you know, someone at the other end of the world is waiting for you. Yeah. To listen to you. Um, in terms of being nice, the sessions fingers are fingers crossed. <laughs> yeah. Fingers crossed. You know, each each per, when a person requests feedback and someone else responds, we we do not monitor those sessions. We're not there listening in. Yeah, I mean, we we can get into a little bit more detail on on how that works uh, in in a in a minute, I think. But I I wanted to address something else first, which is there there seems to be a kind of a that's at least that's my impression. There seems to be a big break that happens once we graduate, because um, as you all said now, um, and and I had a similar experience is we're actually very open with giving feedback and maybe quite harsh uh, when we are still students, quite, <laughs> quite harsh. Quite. Um, and, and we had this practice group as well. So it was not just in class, but it was also just among peers when we gave feedback to each other, we were quite open. But I'd, I'd like to believe that we got quite good at giving feedback because we then also knew, you know, the weak points and the strong points in, in our yeah, peers. That's right. And that seems to change once we graduate. And then at least my impression is that, you know, when we make a living, Uh, working in the booth, the whole feedback thing kind of goes away. And it seems like uh, unless I guess you have a, a very close booth mate that you know very well, you don't really do that. You don't really give feedback to each other, uh, neither positive or negative. Is that a wrong impression or do you, mm. do you feel similarly about that? I, I was asked once there was, I have my favorite booth mate. And I said to her once, you know, what did you think of that? And her answer was, If you weren't still good, I would stop working with you. <laughs> End of feedback. Fair and, and and I've actually said to interpreters, you know, about you know, I've been I used to try. I still need to get back to, but I used to have a practice plan, and someone said to me, you know, if you still need to work on interpreting, does that mean that you shouldn't be taking work? Yeah. And I thought this is right on the button of where the problem lies. I'm sure we all know and, and lovely Elizabeth Teselius found that certain staff interpreters were getting worse. Yeah, It's not that they're bad interpreters. It's not that we need to hook them out and never let them work again. It's because if you don't have a feedback system and you don't have a deliberate practice system, you're probably getting worse. End of. Aline, I see you're having, uh, <laughs> I, nodding I, I heavily, so feel yeah. free to chime in. <laughs> no, I agree. And in addition to that, I have to say that in my experience, it was very difficult to get a good number of day of working days to feel that I that I was getting experience and getting good at anything. Mm -hmm. And then there's the uh, there's another question: How many days a year do you need to get better? I don't know. Has there been a study done on that? And will you even get better if you get I don't know 50 days of work a year, 150? Mm -hmm. Perhaps not, because yeah. you are not practicing. You are rendering you're giving a service to your clients and it's not the same thing. Yeah. And I don't think your clients should be paying you to practice anyway. You know, <laughs> practice on your own. That's another point. Yeah. But I, I think that's what you were referring to, Jonathan, right? With Elizabeth's yeah. study, she found out that uh, a 
cohort of interpreters that work an awful lot, i.e. interpreters in the European institutions do not necessarily get better just because they work a lot. Some may even get worse over time. So I don't know what kind of parameters she used to sort of evaluate or measure the quality, but um, apparently that's what she she found out. It's not just a function of how much work you do. Uh, You don't necessarily get better. So we might want to get into the whole thing of deliberate practice at at some point. Um, But Jonathan, did you, did you want to uh, say something? Is there anything, any other research about this? Um, that's the one I know. Now, that research has become complicated, and this is a whole related subject. Actually, a couple of years ago, I heard of research from Ferlo Duflu on how people become professional interpreters in the European institutions. And her argument was, notwithstanding what Elizabeth found... What's really important is the fact that the interpreters in the European institutions learn about the equipment and the procedures and stuff, and that's as much a part of being a professional as your delivery. Mm-hmm. So it's not that she said it didn't matter, she just said that perhaps we're not wide enough in our view. You can argue back and forth about that, but I do think there's something that psychologists call metacognitive awareness, which is the awareness of how you're doing your job and what you need to do your job. And I have, because of the market I'm in, I don't hit lots and lots of days a year at the moment. It's annoying, but there we go. But by the same token, because of the work I do in other areas and other ways that I get to practice and help myself grow, I think I'm now a far better interpreter than I was two years ago even, simply because I'm now far more aware of what I'm doing when I'm interpreting. And I can now, I'm now much better at making conscious decisions because I've learned things about client expectations, about what an event actually is. And all of this stuff means that I can prepare better and I believe I can give a better service because my metacognitive awareness is there Mm -hmm. much more than it was two, three years ago. Um, And so this is the thing, if we could get interpreters into deliberate practice and get them into deliberately growing their metacognitive awareness, I think would be on to a winner. At the moment, I don't know if Arlene would agree with me, but I think at the moment, many interpreters, I don't say most, but many interpreters view as, I'm working, so I must be good enough. Yeah. <laughs> or, or they may be saying, you and I have so much work, I have no time for deliberate practice. <laughs> I, I, I don't know about that. Uh, but just a quick question <laughs> for you, Alex, if uh, if I may, do, um, sure. because I know you have a few boothmates that you're quite close with. So is there any feedback happening there, if, if you want to share, of course? There's one boothmate that I asked for feedback, uh-huh. um, just because I was curious, because we'd never talked about it. And I, and, I, and I said that much. I was like, you know, we've never talked about this. So I'm just curious, what do you think? Yeah. What would you change? And there's another boothmate whom I constantly give feedback to, but it's she's great and I love working with her and she's really great, but she constantly down talks herself. She's always like, oh, that didn't really go well. Oh, I think that really was oh. very difficult. And so I'm always like, no, 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 that was great. You did a great job. So I kind yeah. of try to like uplift her and like encourage her. But that's kind of like as far as it goes. There, there mm. was one instance, which I didn't like. I Let me just say that ahead of time where I got feedback from an interpreter in another booth who 
on her shift was basically just clicking through the different booths. And then she just came in and my booth mate and I, we were both, you know, working really well together, but she had a much different style of interpreting than I did just, you know, based on the intonation, based on the delivery. And then that colleague from the other booth, she came in in the break and she said, I much prefer how she does it over how you do it. Like in front of both of us. Wow. And she's like, maybe you should work on sounding a little bit more like her. And I was thinking, (laughs) First of all, the nerve, and second of all, maybe I don't want to sound like her. Maybe I like how I sound, you know? So I think that was a bit um, much. And then I kind of laughed it off and shrugged it off, but... I think that's sure, kind of an example of how to, to <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think that's kind of an, an example of how to not do it. Hmm. Possibly. I don't know. Aline, what do you think? <laughs> I am not sure I would take a comment like that very well myself. <laughs> You're right. Yeah, because, well, because when when I'm in the booth, I'm I'm focused on something else. Mm. I'm focused on delivering a service, right? I'm trying to help communication happen in the meeting. And hopefully, by the time I get into the booth, I already did my preparation and my research, and I practice the phrases that I always trip with, and and did my glossary research, and and uh, with luck, I got to practice a speech that I think will be useful or related to the topic mm-hmm. I will be working in mm. beforehand. And that's the that's when I would want to hear everything that should be improved. Mm. But in the booth, I think that could throw me off. Mm. I don't know. Then again, I have gotten like specific feedback of things I should improve in the booth from from a from a colleague who does it in a very professional and polite way, and I appreciate it very much. But to to be fair, she waits until the end of the meeting and tells me if I may. Could I suggest that you do this and this and this? And I cut this. And if you don't want me to say these things to you, I'll stop. But mm. if you do, here they are. So mm. way to do it. I, th- I think as well, I was working with a new colleague who spotted that I got the the formation of a certain word and a certain tent wrong. And that's great because then next time I'm not going to do it again. It was just I was in a rush and I got it wrong. It's fine. Um, what's harder to give feedback on and in a way just as important is the way people act in the booth. So, you know, it's one thing for someone to say, do you realize you got that tent slightly wrong? And that's that's great. I can improve on it. But sometimes you you might want to say to a colleague, and I've only had this happen kind of once or twice, do you realize the way that you act in the booth makes it more difficult for your booth mate to do their job? And that's much harder to give feedback on. But on the other hand, those kind of issues can become really bad niggles that make things a lot worse. You know, silly example, I know I heard a story of um, one interpreter who decided that they wanted to eat a really, really stinky cheese after the assignment and hung it up on the coat rack in the booth. Really horrible thing. Oh, my God. But, you know, in in our profession, how many interpreters would go, if you smell like that, I'd be doing this job on my own. You know? Even if I'm not supposed to, yeah. <laughs> I'd much rather an out of chuchotage than a smelly cheese hung up on the coat rack. Yeah. What I wanted to ask about is, um, and maybe we can get a little bit into the guidelines, Aline, that you have for Interpret Time Bank, um, which I'm not familiar with. What are good strategies to decide, first of all, on what you should give feedback on? Because, I mean, that, that can be several elements of interpreting that you could sort of critique as it were, or give feedback on. So, you know, delivery, delivery accuracy, uh, how you speak, how you behave in the booth, and so on and so forth. Uh, is there anything on that in, in the guideline or any, anything that you would, would comment on? I am very glad you asked that question. Well, first <laughs> of all, since Interpret Time Bank is an online community, 
we cannot really get feedback on how other people behave in the booth because we don't know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We're not there together. We can't see them. However, it is, I think, crucial that when you request someone's time uh, for them to listen to you and give you feedback, you should have some idea of what you need to work on. Mm-hmm. And I think that if you have been through proper training or if you have a certain amount of experience in the market, you probably know what you need to improve. And I say probably, yeah, because mm-hmm. we, have, we all have our, our blind spots. So having said this, is really an important thing to go into your practice session with some objectives in mind. We encourage not to have like a whole list of goals to improve in one speech, but maybe focus on two or three aspects that you want to work on. And that way, the person who is listening to you can give you feedback that would be useful. You know, because if you're working, let's say, on, on decalage or, or on intonation or in precision, hmm. then the other person can be watching out for that and maybe give you some other general comments. Or, I don't know, if you're having problems with your tenses or with finding synonyms, the other person is looking out for that. Once again, they can not, not only pinpoint the problem, hopefully, but also give you some good strategies to, to try and fix it. That I think is, is already very advanced feedback if you can not only just mirror the issues or talk about or uh, point out the problems as it were, but that you can al- already provide strategies to address them. I think that's that would that's actually what makes a, a good interpreting trainer or interpreting teacher. If you can provide that as, as a colleague or as a peer, that's that's great. Um, and it just occurred to me, we didn't really say actually what interpret time bank is because we just took it as a given. Do you want to do that real quickly? Yes, the basic idea behind Interpret Time Bank is, on one hand, to have a time bank in which people will exchange time for time. I will listen to you, and then someone else in the community will listen to me and give me something very valuable, which is feedback. And we're able to give this feedback because we have acquired certain skills through training and through experience. Where does it happen? Well, Interpret Time Bank is an online community. Right now, we are still functioning on, on Google+, Plus, on that uh, social network. But as you know, Alex, we are finishing up the, um, the custom-made platform to make all this easier. Nice. And the way this is going to work is that the members that, that decide to, to come over to the new platform will create a um, profile in which they will indicate their... Um, language combination, their name, and some other information that is requested. Not all of it is mandatory. And then what the what the, uh, the platform will do is that it will help you find other people that have a similar language combination that could give you feedback <laughs> so that you can find potential practice partners very easily without overwhelming everybody in the community with messages or mm-hmm. with emails whenever there are notifications. So that's, that's the idea. Now, The um, Interpret Time Bank is is not an open community. There is a selection process to join. So, for example, at this point, it is not open to undergrad students, for example. Okay, that's interesting, yeah. Mm. It's Um, open to students of master's uh, master's degrees and to professionals with proven experience. mm. I think that's an interesting take because certainly my impression has been that the further interpreters get into their career the less open they seem to be to receive feedback. And yet there seems to be a suggestion in Lisa Betts' work and perhaps his other work as well, that when we really need feedback the most is not when we're starting out and we have this support group around us of lecturers and peers and so on, but when we're out in the market on our own, if you're a freelancer. 
and just having to get on with it. We've kind of done a good job of creating an interpreting community of practice in some ways and not in others. Um, have you found any reactions from professionals to the idea? You know, have have any professionals gone, I, I don't need that? You know, how, how have the professionals reacted, Eileen? We've had mixed reactions. Some of them are very happy to have found something like that because once it's, they start working, it becomes very difficult to perhaps take courses every so often. Mm-hmm. Um, it is very difficult to balance your work life with your family life and on top of it with more mm-hmm. practice to get better. So for some of them, it has been very positive. But it is true that some other professionals do not want to be heard by potential colleagues or mm-hmm. or recruiters or mm-hmm. or what have you. I don't know. I think it takes humility to be able to put yourself in that situation and take feedback from from peers. Mm. So yeah, we have had both both ends of the spectrum, I should say. But you know, this is you sign up if you want to. No one is forced no to No one is forced to do it. it. <laughs> nope. 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 Yeah. I mean I guess technically as a recruiter myself, I would actually I can understand the reticence and in a way I would be reticent as well, but as much because of my language combination as anything else. Um Let's not go down that road. Um, um, But I I think, so my policy as a consultant is when I'm building a team, I either take people who I've already heard or who are recommended by those who I've heard. And that's it. And so for, you know, if I was practicing an interpreter bank and I was saying, you know, I want to work on my public speaking skills in French and I'm swapping with someone who's working on their English, if I find out they're a blinking amazing interpreter, they're going to get more work. Um, you know, that you can't lose work that you never had in the first place. Um, and I, I think this is the, it, it's an interesting model and it's a model that when I first heard of, I thought, not sure what I think of that, but actually makes a lot of sense. Uh, you know, how much would you have to pay another interpreter to coach you? I have no idea. But yeah, th- this idea of swapping and the humility of saying where we're practicing together, I think ma- makes an awful lot of sense. Yeah. We're starting a little bit of to collect arguments, I think, for sort of working interpreters on why it would make sense for them to be part of one of these initiatives, Interpret Time Bank being one of them. So it, it would be, first of all, this sort of sense of humility, as you just put it, Jonathan, which I kind of like, that um, even if you if you have a lot of work and you're well established on the market, you, you, you probably, well, you surely still have things that you can work on, things that you can improve in your target languages, in your source languages, you know, whatever. Um, what, what are, um, are there any other arguments for sort of seasoned interpreters to maybe motivate them to join one of these platforms? I mean, I, I guess one could be that, um, if you give your time and you give feedback to younger colleagues as well, that's that's just one way of giving back to the profession, as we like to say, or maybe, you know, help young interpreters getting a good start. And can you think of anything else? When you're adding a new language combination, even if you're a very seasoned professional already, mm. this is a, a nice, safe environment where, where you can try out. Mm. And I've heard that a lot. Yeah. And, and that that can be a sort of a strange experience when you add a new language. And I mean, you don't really start from scratch, but you start sort of at a lower level necessarily because it's a new language. Jonathan, you yeah. There's a couple of things. One, I think it could, it's probably likely to come back brain rot. Um, the, this feeling of, for example, I've done quite a few fisheries jobs 
And if I was to do deep sea fishing on a regular basis, the likelihood is I would get into a rut. And then if I got a job in nuclear power, I would go, how do I adjust to a new setting again? Yeah. You know, if, you, if you've got, especially if you've got a job coming up and you think, right, I need to practice this. You know, if I had a, a sales conference coming up, I would want to sit down with other interpreters and go, right, let's hammer out my French public speaking skills because this is going to be really important in this job. You know, if you've changed environments, um, even even if you're just scared enough of getting worse to want to practice. Um, and I think the last thing is, you know, if I went to a, a doctor and the last time they'd done any updates to their training was 20 years ago. <laughs> oh, boy. I'd, yeah, exactly. You know, we wouldn't accept from a medical professional that, you know, they're still thinking that it's a good idea to shove leeches up our nose to cure a cold. If anyone ever did that. But, you know, if we, if we went to a doctor and they were still using ideas from 20, 30 years ago, we would go somewhere else. So our clients should expect the same of us, yeah. that we've been working on our skills and updating them and practicing not, you know, last decade, but at least some point in the last year. Um, if not, then we're, then we're asking our clients to put a whole lot of faith in us, far more faith than we'd put in almost any other profession. Yeah, although some interpreters might say, well, I do CPD, but I do it for, you know, my my field of expertise. And uh, we're very much talking about languages and, and interpreting technique, which is a bit different, I think. Um, yeah, but uh, so looking looking at the sort of other target po target group, I think for initiatives like this and for Interpret Time Bank, i.e. Uh, students or budding interpreters, um, well, I think the, the advantages there are pretty obvious for them, but um, is there anything that we haven't quite thought about? I mean, is, could this be used to extend your network almost? Is this almost like a networking thing? <laughs> I was about to say that. Okay. Yeah. I have noticed that it creates bridges. Mm -hmm. It has been my personal experience that uh, when I work with colleagues from, from Latin America, I have worked with colleagues from Argentina, Peru, and Mexico so far, given the language combinations, we usually start by wanting to, to know more about each other and to know about our markets and how things work and how clients react to us and what are the professional associations that they belong to and what are their issues, the issues that they are facing. And I, I have found that very enriching, mm -hmm. very, very enriching. And then at some point, I've, I have been able to recommend people um, in cases mm -hmm. where perhaps it's not as easy to, to find or to recruit interpreters if you're in very, very different parts of the world. Mm -hmm. and, and I have had people ask me, hey, do you know of anyone here and here? And I have been able to say, actually, I do. <laughs> And um, <laughs> yeah, no, and, and it's very strange. It's like, why would I know anyone in Peru? Well, because I practiced with them once. Mm. Uh, what I do is that first I, I ask that colleague if I may give out his or her contact information and then I proceed, you know, and then whatever happens, happens. <laughs> But um, in, in any case, it has been, I have had very enriching conversations. Mm. I think also, I mean, there. If you're practicing with someone, you realize that they're not faultless either. Um, there, there, there's something about building a network. I wouldn't be surprised if people end up referring jobs like you just said. I wouldn't be surprised if uh, people start learning. We were talking on the last episode about the importance of socialization into the profession. And 
for newer interpreters and perhaps for older ones that came through a different route, I could see practicing being a very good way of, of socializing them into norms, into the way that you approach a mission, the way that you approach different strategies. Um, that kind of socialization, although it's going to be more gentle and more subtle, I think that could happen a lot through practice. So, you know, if I was working on my public speaking and someone said to me, you know, in French, you can really just drop that and it will sound better. That's socialization. You know, that that's norm building, that's strategy building. It would be lovely to see kind of some scientific studies on what happens when you're practicing with people. Do you end up interpreting in the same way? You know, is this a way that we're kind of building community norms but it's it's really fascinating that you know you could go into work on your interpreting technique and come out having learned a whole new approach to interpreting yeah um i, I was wondering if there's any any research there there certainly should be because there are quite a few of these initiatives now and, and i wanted to touch on on one thing that I, i noticed so for example another very sort of well-known initiative is is WISE, which is different because it happens in real life. So people get together in one spot to um, to give each other feedback and to give speeches to each other. Uh, so it's usually in Brussels or in, in Valencia. Um, so I'm, I'm wondering if, Aline, if you have seen in your work on Interpret Time Bank any difference in how people give feedback sort of in real life, which you've experienced yourself, as you said, and online, because I mean, There's, there's lots of articles now about how people react differently sort of online on social media when you don't face a person directly. Um, although I think you, you're working with uh, video chat, right? So that may be different. So, but I'm just wondering if that's uh, a thought or a, a discussion you've had. We, we have. We tried to work on video and we encouraged to have the, the feedback done live. Mm. However, since time is an issue for for many of uh, of, of the interpret time bank members sometimes what they do is that they record their speech they send it to the partner and then the partner records the feedback back or writes an email or whatever from what i've seen and heard and from what people have told me it tends to be very polite but the preferred method definitely is uh yeah. it's to have a live conversation I have done uh, the wise workshop mm. and I can tell you that one main difference between being on on video conference and being live is that sometimes people take a lot longer to give you feedback when they're online. Okay. I have had almost an hour long feedback session with, yes, with, with COVID. It was very useful. I, I, wow. I, I, I yeah. Say it was very useful, but I don't think that would happen live. It's never happened to me. No one has ever given me feedback for an hour. <laughs> Maybe you'd have to do it in a pub somewhere. <laughs> And then you talk about life in general after that. I was going to say it depends how much coffee is there. Yeah. <laughs> Now, one of the things that I was going to ask is, you know, Interpretime Bank is basically just, is, is mainly there to create feedback. But it seems like it, it has the potential to create relationships as well. I'm not talking romantic ones. Have you found kind of people sending you feedback and saying, actually, I've kind of found a new friend or, you know, um, I've grown closer to my colleagues. Is there kind of some social benefit that they're finding out of this as well as growing as an interpreter? Definitely. It, it has happened to me. I Well, I have found new colleagues, but I, I have also found people that call me to ask me for advice in their career. And I feel very honored that okay. people think mm. I could give valuable advice, but I have done the same in turn. Mm. I have called people to ask them, hey, what what would you do? What 
please mm-hmm. tell me, give me some advice. So yeah, I, I think it has the potential to create relationships outside just the peer-to-peer feedback. Mm. And I think you're, you're also very timely with the project because you mentioned earlier that you, for now you've been using the, the Google Plus service, which I think is going, going away at some point next year. So. Yeah, it's not yeah. You, you got the timing, right? <laughs> yes. um, I know it's difficult to platform without being able to, to see it, but can you just give us sort of broad strokes what the platform looks like or the, the kind of features that it has? I think you you pro- you yourself probably know the platform better than I do at this point because you did the <laughs> maybe yeah I did some testing. beta testing I have to I have to disclose this I guess yes yeah. yes I, I have to disclose it too but uh, let's see you basically have to create a profile like in any other platform an interesting thing is that you have to write in your A B and C languages uh, you have to give some information in terms of your professional background. There's a, there's a way to create an exchange with someone else. We call it exchange, meaning I'm asking for feedback on such and such language. I would like to work on this topic. You can be as descriptive as, as you want. And then um, there is a system of notifications, meaning that the people who match your language profile will receive that, noti- that notification. And then you can say, okay, I, I will give you feedback. And then there's a way to schedule the time and the date. Yeah. There, there will be um, a way to to have that reflected on a calendar, and then eventually they there will there will be a messaging system as well. Wow! There, yes, uh, you know, we're going to release a first version. It's going to be a simpler version, and then the idea is to add features to it. But then mm-hmm. first, we need to see how it works, um, how we can migrate all the members that we have now into mm-hmm. the new platform, etc. I mean, I, I heard of Interpretime Bank back when you were doing fundraising for it. Mm-hmm. And it really surprised me how quickly it seemed that the community got behind it. Yeah. Um, historically, and a lot of other tech people say this, historically, interpreters aren't the most, um, they aren't the biggest fans of new platforms and new techs. I'm being diplomatic now. But it seems it seems like you found an audience that went, actually, that's an idea that we need and we're gonna jump on board. Did the fundraiser just take off really quickly or was it a case of kind of winning people over to get money out of their pockets? No, I have to say that we had a lot of help from family and friends who believed in us <laughs> and loved us very much and gave us their money. It was not all <laughs> Jonathan was asking for the next live event, I suppose. <laughs> Because we did a fundraiser <laughs> as well. Yeah. The next live event's happening in my living room. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can relate to that. Yeah, no, so there was that. We, we had a lot of love money, let's say. But um, I think that the need we, we found or we felt as, uh, as recent graduates having to get into a very competitive market that seems to be shrinking mm. was, um, was shared by many other colleagues across the board. Mm. Definitely. So they 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 did get back on that, and and we also we we had a very strong campaign, I I have to say, on social media, mm-hmm. and that helped. But definitely, we wouldn't have been able to to make the target without the support from family and friends. Mm-hmm. That's fair enough. Yeah, but but do you think there's um, maybe question to all of you as well? Do do you think there's kind of a change in mood, perception, whatever, because you just alluded to it, Jonathan, uh, that 
interpreters traditionally have not been very embracing, let's say, of new technologies. But there are quite a few platforms now. I mean, there's uh, there's the speech repository from from Skake, for example. There's SpeechPool. There are some social media-based groups. So there, there seems to be quite a momentum behind these platforms where you can upload video or, you know, give each other feedback. You're right. That is definitely a thing. And it's definitely a thing for a certain part of the interpreting, not necessarily the market, but I don't want to make it into an age thing, but I definitely think there's a, a huge slice of the interpreting population out there who've never heard of, um, you know, the speech repository, mm. who wouldn't care if they did. Where at the same time, I think if I think if you get them while they're young, <laughs> there's a bigger chance that they're going to stick with it and mm. also advocate for it. Mm. You know, whereas if you've already been in the market when the speech repository came out or Interpretime Bank came out, maybe you're kind of you kind of missed the bandwagon on that one. Do you mm. know what I mean? I think I mean I would agree with you. I've been chatting to people for a while now, actually since I started probably halfway through the PhD, about what I saw as a cultural shift. In fact, I, w I remember having a chat with with a colleague once at an academic conference saying it feels like there's a demographic division in interpreting. Now, it's not necessarily an age thing. I know some older interpreters who are very down with the kids. <laughs> But there is an attitude. <laughs> yeah, we got the Donald Duck laugh. <laughs> there, there is an attitude thing going on. I'll give you a very quick example from when I did my training. We had two interpreters come in to do the pedagogical assistance thing. One, who I believe was a staff interpreter, one was a freelancer, but who still had very strong links to the institutions and to that market. And one of them came in and was such a down-the-line traditionalist it kind of hurt. You know, it was kind of like if, if by halfway through your training, you can't do Jacques Chirac, what are you even doing here kind of thing. Um, and the other person who I must say was a lady and the other person was a gentleman. The lady who came in was incredibly supportive and understood the journey and, and could see shifts coming and was encouraging us to, you know, lean on each other and support each other and spend time with each other. And it, it strike, struck me then, and it strikes me even more now, that there is kind of two camps in interpreting, as Alex said. There's the people who cared about this stuff, who cared about practice, who cared about CPD, who cared about, if you like, becoming a modern profession and being a business. And then there's the other people who probably are so comfortable and ensconced in what they have that they don't see the benefit. And if you have a perception, and I think there is a general perception in many places, that the market is shrinking, I would argue the market is moving rather than shrinking in most places. Um, you know, when you're under threat, you tend to be more proactive. I think that's just how it goes. The people who think, you know, my clients will be with me until I turn 100. <laughs> why would you convince them to practice? Yeah. But, you know, the people like me who feel like it's a, a knockdown, drag out fight for every job. Yeah, we're going to care. Of course we're going to care. Yeah. Well, and, and I think personal development or, or developing your personal skills um, is very important too. So it's not if if it's not maybe not going too well. I don't think it's only just about well, I have to do more marketing or I have to market more aggressively or I don't know that kind of thing. Uh, maybe that's also it's also an opportunity to improve your skills, work on your skills, and that kind of thing. But um, the Jacques Chirac comment actually re uh, reminded me of something else that I wanted to talk about. Um, is uh, Aline, do you have in your guidelines any tips about finding 
the right practice material, pitching the challenges at the right level. So it's not frustrating, but it's also not too easy uh, because I, th I find that quite difficult because I sometimes have to write speeches for training or for video recordings. And I, I find it quite challenging to pitch them to the right level because when we say, well, please write us a six minute concept speech for uh, an intermediate advanced speak, you know, student, that kind of thing. I find that, I find that quite difficult. We do too. <laughs> it is yeah. difficult. Because yeah. it is. Yeah. <laughs> Because it is. Um, we like the speech repository. We like speech pool. Hmm. Um, then we have a couple other tools that we put together. One is called the topic of the month and the other one is the speech of the week. Hmm. But these are not pedagogical speeches. Uh, the, the topic of the month is like a collection of speeches uh, in different languages that address let's say, current affairs, for example. No? And, and we have a pretty large collection right now. They're all on the, on the Google Drive and they are publicly accessible. And you can go in there and see the speeches and they have more or less been selected to see if they're useful to work on simultaneous and consecutive okay. or yeah. on-site translation. Mm. But they are not like separated in beginners, uh, mm. intermediate and advanced speeches like you would find in the speech repository. That remains a, a difficult issue. Uh, there was a, an experience recently, which I, I like very much, and it is that we, another tool that we have is called the practice groups. And mm. what we do is that we recruit a volunteer that will be like the coordinator of the group, and we help this person send, uh, send around emails to recruit a group of people and coordinate them to give each other feedback and whatnot. And um, we had a, a young graduate from La Laguna volunteer to coordinate a group like this, and it was supposed to be a one-week practice group so they were going to do one speech and they were going to give each other feedback and in the end it turned out into a six or seven week practice group because they, they were all into it and i asked him so how did you pick your speeches and he's like well i don't know i just looked on youtube and you know based on the previous feedback session i would i would just look for something and propose it and i always ask my my uh, my peers that if they preferred to work in another speech that they they knew for whatever reason to let me know so, you know, in that sense, it has encouraged communication to see as well what speeches can be useful and which ones aren't. But once again, it depends on, on your objectives. If you're starting out a master's, you're not going to be looking for the same kind of material than if you're preparing for an institutional exam, for example. Mm. You, you should be able to more or less address that. At the, you know, by the time you finish your master's. I'm, I'm coaching two interpreters at the moment as part of a a research program and it's interesting because they're uh, British Sign Language and English interpreters so they have a completely different combination to me but the interesting thing is is it's amazing how much you can work on monolingually mm. um, so we're talking about dealing with super fast speakers and dealing with speakers trying to be funny <laughs> and so I realized favorite topics. I, well, it's interesting because I was thinking I actually You know, there are exercises that you can do. I've got a colleague called Martin Jovchos, who is the king of um, exercises that are actually based on science. Absolutely superb. He works on them with his wife, who's a speech therapist. So they, they break down things that, go, that could go wrong in your brain and how to fix them. Um, but I realized that if they want to do humorous speeches, actually a good place to start is to, do, is to shadow a monolingual one and then go back and say, what? did the humor do in that talk? And it's this metacognitive thing that, you know, if you're practicing interpreting a speech, your brain doesn't necessarily have the space to go, how did that speech fit together? 
and why was this joke there and not there? So there's a, a guy called James Veach who for two years answered all these Nigerian prints, you know, I've got a million pound for you emails. Yeah. And he's got a TED talk on his experience and it's hilariously funny. It is, yeah. But it's very, very clever because you realize that the humor in his talk as much comes from the pacing as it does from the fact that he got um, a spammer to call the bank a jelly bean and the lawyer a princess or whatever. You know, it, it's insane, but it's funny because he knows how to stop. Something I'm not very good at. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll need to put that in the show notes. It's very good material. Yeah. yeah. And it is great practice material, whether you're doing monolingual or bilingual, because you're learning how to be funny. And if, if you decide, you know, I've got a conference coming up and this speaker thinks they're a stand-up comedian, mm. I need to learn how to be funny in the booth, where work on stuff that's funny and then work out why is it funny and then, you know, practice doing that. I'm glad that you qualified that remark because I, I heard you mention shadowing and I was reminded of a conversation with a, <laughs> no, an no, eminent no, no. researcher we had the other day on Twitter <laughs> who wasn't that convinced of the advantages of, shadow, of shadowing. But anyway, that's that's a topic for another, <laughs> for another day. Um, that's a whole other episode. Yeah. So maybe, maybe to close the feedback loop, sorry for that pun. So uh, to close the loop at, at this point... Um, I want you to get back to the whole idea of deliberate practice. We, I, I think we have had some ideas um, already, but maybe also as a motivation to get people to check out projects like Interpret Time Bank uh, and others. Um, and do we have a few more things we can tell people about deliberate practice that may not yet be familiar with what that means? Aline, I think you, you had some things in the beginning you said. So, you, for example, you pick one thing that you want to focus on during the session, but maybe there are some, some other tips as well that we can give people. Can, can I take uh, the liberty here to get back to my background as a dancer? Of course. <laughs> it, it might be easier to illustrate it with an example. Sure. When I was very young, a long time ago, <laughs> um, I, I had just started training in a, in a very prestigious ballet school in Mexico City. And we had a teacher who was uh, actually a professional dancer and a, and a teacher at the National Ballet Company. And it was like a big deal to have him come in and teach his class. And he told us, look, I don't want you to come here and work hard. I don't care for you working hard. I need you to work smart. Because otherwise you will be coming and devoting hours and hours and hours of class to fossilize your mistakes. And that is not yes. going to do any service. So to me, back then, that was the first time I heard about deliberate practice without, without anyone using that name. But it really meant breaking down the skills, or mm. let's say make, breaking down uh, a dance move, right? Mm. And seeing what, what were the steps for it and seeing if you were doing them all right. And if you were not, to pinpoint the one in which you were failing and then focusing on that through repetition, mm. fixing it, and then seeing if the ensemble got better. And I saw that it did. I saw it time and time again. So in terms of deliberate practice and feedback, I would say that deliberate practice means to practice smart, to, to choose or to design exercises um, that you know that you need. Hopefully you got that during your master's and, and your trainers were able to, to tell you more or less where you, where you needed extra work. Or maybe your peers can help you do that as well. So you have this, this design, this idea of, a, of an exercise in which you need to improve because you have a skill that needs to be polished. Then you come into your practice section, uh, session with objectives. 
And uh, you ask the person who will give you feedback to focus on that and, mm. you know, take it from there, hopefully get a strategy coming out of that. And of course, there are two elements, repetition, you have to repeat it and do it as many times as you need until you get it right. Mm. And time. And and uh, I also just wanted to quickly mention that there are a few good books out there containing exercises and some ideas for practicing interpreting. So notably from uh, Andy Gillies, and I, I suppose there are a few others as well. That, and they are not only, I mean, they are intended for interpreting trainers, but of course, you know, everybody who's interested in these books can just go out and, and read them um, and use them as, as inspiration. I don't know, Jonathan, if you have any any books that you can recommend. Is this going to be the the Jonathan talks about his book clacks and getting things there? There is a chapter in my first book on CPD and on deliberate practice. I think I call it strategic CPD. I actually have a workshop now, which I do, which is hilarious because for a while people kept asking for the one workshop where I talk the least. I never did get the hint. Um, and basically in, the, in that workshop, rather than me telling people anything, I do like kind of two minutes on checking that they understand what strategic CPD is. And then I spend the rest of the session asking them like three questions and they work in groups together to design their own plan. Yeah. Um, and I found out with that session very, very quickly that people were better. So I, I tried out a technique which I guessed would work, but I wasn't sure, in that I taught people the basics of research-style interviewing and got them to interview each other, and then on the basis of the interview to suggest, right, here's an idea for your strategic CPD plan, rather than having people sit at desk and go, I'm good at this, I'm not so good at this, da 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 da, -da what shall I do? They interviewed each other, and then out of the interview, the interviewer said, you've said this, this, and this. Have you thought about maybe trying this? And it's funny how much clearer you get, how much more clarity you get when someone interviews you than when you sit at a desk and go, what's wrong with me this month? Because <laughs> it could just be you have a stomachache or a cold <laughs> or a flu, yeah. Or a flu. But this this shows once again that um, really I think that the magic kind of happens when you, you know, talk with a peer and, and talk through things and, and get that feedback from, from somebody else. And I really like the phrase that you used earlier, uh, Alina, about the fossilizing of mistakes. And it doesn't have to be mistakes. It, it can just be ticks, you know, or strange turns of phrases, you know, all these kinds of things. Um, so I'm, I'm really glad we, that we have projects out there like Interpret Time Inc. And I really encourage people to try it out. I don't know, Aline, if you, if you can or want to say anything about uh, the next steps or any, do you have any uh, plans when you want to uh, go public with this first version? Fingers crossed. I know it's always a difficult question. <laughs> it's always a difficult question because it depends on on how the last stage of fixing bugs goes, but uh, mm. we are hoping, hoping, hoping we, we we can do it before this year ends. That sounds good. And, and we are <laughs> almost great. in November, right? So Yes. I, I'm saying exactly the same thing about the first draft of my second book, oh. so I completely understand you. Originally, I was going to get it finished before our fourth child arrived, and that, that didn't, didn't work. Happen. <laughs> yeah. No. Does the story be? Four kids, four kids under seven. <laughs> yeah. Yes. For those of you who aren't watching the video of this, I have like bags under my eyes that are large enough to deal with the, the uh, British uh, national debt after Brexit. <laughs> now he's <laughs> just fishing for compliments, Jonathan. <laughs> anyway, See, I, I, I was going to say I, I'm I'm 
definitely, now that I understand Interpretime Bank a lot better, I'll be needing peer feedback. My fear is that I find a really mean peer who just says to me, and you've been getting work. So, you know, when I join, can I ask that everyone be nice to the Troublesome Terps co-host, please? You can. <laughs> I think that's that's in the guidelines anyway. <laughs> I hope so. Be respectful. Yeah, it is in the guidelines. Wonderful. Be, be respectful to Scots when it's a wonder we can even speak English. Exactly. <laughs> okay, so um, I want to thank you, Aline, for taking the time to join us tonight f um, for this very, very interesting conversation. I know it's it's difficult as a young parent, uh, and Jonathan can relate as well, I assume. <laughs> so we are going to let um, all the parents of young children go for tonight. Um, thanks once again. Thanks to my co-hosts as well, Alexander Gansmeyer and Jonathan Downey. And we'll talk to you next time on Troublesome Trips. Thank you, gentlemen. It's been fun. Bye-bye. Bye. Finishing oh. at nine. Seriously. Well, it's ten over oh, here. It's ten. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, I'm in so much trouble. Yes. What's that? No, that's just for that's us just too. For us. Does that work better? Oh my god. Three, two, one.